Gracious God, we have come to this place tonight from so many different spaces. Some of us are full of joy and gratefulness, overflowing with the really good stories that are taking place in our own lives and in the lives of those we love. Others of us are burdened with doubt and anxiety, sickness, and so many other things. But God, we are grateful that you have called us to be here today together with one another and with you. We are grateful for this grand story that you have invited each of us to play a small part in. This story that often confuses and mystifies us even as it brings us great joy. We are grateful that we get to come and eat together at your table, finding strength and solidarity for the week to come. We ask that your presence would be evident here today and that we would have ears to hear the very good news. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So uh, tonight, I'm going to read our scripture for us tonight before Pastor Chris comes and preaches. So our scripture reading is from Acts chapter 1, 1 through 11. So if you would stand to honor the reading of God's scripture. In my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up into heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. During the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time, and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive, and he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Once when he was eating with them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised, as I told you before. John baptized with water, but in just a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? He replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. As they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. This is the word of God for the people of God. And let us say together. Thanks, Hope, for reading. I almost don't have a voice, so I'm appreciative that she's uh, read, that Hope read the scripture for us. My name is Chris. I, I get to be one of the pastors here, and it is a privilege for me to be able to serve uh, this church in this way. <clears throat> this is Ascension Sunday. We call this Ascension Sunday. The church has uh, picked a, a date on the calendar and said, this is Ascension Sunday. And Ascension Sunday is actually really mysterious. We talk about Christmas Sunday and Easter Sunday and Pentecost Sunday, but we as Protestants hardly ever talk about Ascension Sunday. I think the reason that we don't talk about it very much is because it's just weird. Can I just tell you that? I've got a picture here of a painting that I want to show you. Many people have tried to attempt to, to figure out what ascension actually means. We, we don't recognize as Protestants Ascension Sunday very often, and we don't talk about it. And the question is why? 
Now we realize that the resurrection, that the resurrection means that new creation is bursting forth all around us. Easter means that just when the world is coming apart, God in God's power bursts forth and love and joy and peace and prosperity can be enjoyed by everyone now. We know about the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus means that that which God has promised is actually coming at us. Easter, the resurrection, means that the worst thing is never the last thing for us. But ascension, what we just read about just a few minutes ago, what could that possibly mean? Because Luke makes sure to talk about the ascension of Jesus. Well, in Acts, Luke gives insight into the days after Jesus' resurrection. We know that for 40 days, uh, he instructed the apostles uh, after time and time again, revealing to them that he was actually alive. He spent time during those 40 days constantly talking about the kingdom of God. And he says something to them that is really curious. So Jesus dies on the cross. Three days later, he's raised. He then reveals himself to his disciples. And they are amazed at this revelation. For 40 days, he reveals himself. And then he says, you need to wait. Wait, Jesus says. And they respond, wait for what? So he then says to them, You need to wait for something amazing. In a few days, he says, you'll receive power, great power, unleashed power. And it's not the kind of power that comes from guns or bombs or position. In this instance, money isn't power. Rather, Jesus says, you will receive a kind of power, a power that is not of this world. It's a power given to you by my spirit. And when that happens, it happens, you won't just be witnesses to something great. You will be witnesses of that great thing. You will take that great thing into your bodies. And then the Bible says, Luke says, he was taken up, ascended before their very eyes. That is a strange thing. Now, most people take the, the ascension of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, and, the, and they put those two things together. But Jesus was resurrected, and then he ascended. And now, it feels like after reading this text, we just all got to wait for him to come back and rescue us. But the resurrection and the ascension, it's not the same thing. These are, these are two kinds of unique things that lie on the same continuum. They're two different events that stand in relationship to one another. The Apostles' Creed, one of the oldest creeds that we say at the ch- in the church, says this. It, you, you might know the Apostles' Creed, but I want to highlight a portion of it to you. It says, on the third day he rose again, and then he ascended into heaven, and he is seated at the right hand of God Almighty. Okay. At 8th Street Church, you heard this just a minute ago. At 8th Street Church, we celebrate good news. And you are welcome to celebrate appropriately whenever you hear good news. So you must not have heard what I just said because I didn't hear any cheers right there, okay? We celebrate good news. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That's the time for you to cheer. You don't really sound that convinced. He ascended. I like that. And he and he's seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Maybe maybe we're not convinced 
And we don't cheer because we don't actually know what that means. Nobody in this room, I would suspect, has ever seen anyone ascend. Now, we have a tendency to think about the world in these layers or in these levels. And and most of us have never seen anybody like leave this level and go to the next one. So there might be more here. And, And so I invite you, if you would, to put on your philosophy hat. Maybe I'll take you to class. Philosophy 101. Put on your philosophy hat for a second. And let's just spend a couple minutes in college if we could. Now, for the modern evangelical mind... We think about the world in layers. I actually drew you a picture. This is my best artwork that I can. Very close to the artwork you just saw a few minutes ago. But we think about it this way. Layer one is earth. And then layer two is the atmosphere. And then layer three is space. And then if we can rationalize it somewhere way, way out there, maybe in like another dimension, way past the universe, might be a layer four called heaven. This is a tough thing for us to figure out because our discovery through science, um, our, discovery, uh, our discovery of the universe through science seems to have issues with this. So what we do is we ignore this doctrine of the ascension and we say, well, you just need to have faith or on the other hand, we're just skeptical about it. Now, the reason that we say one of those two things is because Sir Isaac Newton helped us to understand gravity And we're smart people. We're really smart people. We're liberated, progressive, enlightened, scientific. And we get, we, we get things like this. And this just seems silliness. I mean, after all, we have experienced airline travel and space exploration and moonwalking. And now we've got GPS systems. So we can be a little bit arrogant when it comes to the divine. With, with the discovery and the common use of tools like this, we, we actually start to believe that we know quite a bit about the earth and space and the universe beyond us. And we do, and we're always discovering more, and that's wonderful. But when we read this text, we need to recognize that, that this is not Luke's world. And the first century person had a different kind of reverence about the mysteries of this planet and, and the universe, this, this place that we call earth. So in the ancient mind, the cosmos or, or space and matter and time were thought of quite differently than we think about it here in the 21st century. We, we need to think about it from a biblical viewpoint, a first century viewpoint, and a biblical way of thinking about matter and space and time is this, that heaven and earth are not just two locations, but they're two different dimensions of God's good create, good creation. So, so hold on a second, and I'll explain this, okay? Now, the earliest Jews and the earliest Christians held on to this idea that their God promised that the way that the world is cannot be that the way, the way in which the world is always going to be. They had this promise in them, something in them that said that God was going to do something about the evil in this world. And so they thought about heaven and earth in a different kind of way. They thought about heaven and earth, and they said that heaven and earth and their ideas of heaven and earth were impacted by this promise. Now, when I think, of, uh, when I think about heaven, and maybe when you think about heaven, we think of it as this eternal paradise where we go after we die, and we try to create proofs of a place called heaven. You've seen the movie, or you've heard about it, Heaven is for Real. Now, most evangelicals, 
when they think about heaven, it's one-dimensional. But for the early Christian writers, the definition of heaven was thicker and it was more nuanced and it, it, it expressed a, a, a more rich variation in meaning than what we bring to the word. So there are two things about heaven that we need to know. Biblical writers thought that heaven was not just a location, but they saw that heaven and earth were in relation to one another. Both were under the, the, the authority of God as part of God's created order. In other words, God created both heaven and earth, and they said that God was in charge of both. This is why we can pray the prayer, Lord, do your will on earth as it is in heaven. They didn't think that heaven was just like adjacent to earth, but what they thought was that the characteristics of heaven was what we all hope earth could be. Everything that we think that is amazing about heaven, they wanted that here on earth. And they said that if heaven and earth were in relation to one another, then the one God who is in heaven and who has authority in heaven can be in multiple places at the same time. That this God could be in multiple locations. God could be in heaven and on earth at the very same time. I used to think that when Jesus ascended to heaven, it was like, pop, he was gone. Disappeared from this earth. Like he went to the drugstore for 2,000 years. He went there for a prescription or something. Or he was on deployment or something. Or he left for a long vacation to see dad. But when Jesus ascends to heaven, it's not like Jesus went away. The apostles watched with new eyes what was being revealed to them and they could only describe it in these words. They said, he ascended. Another way to say it is this. It's like they could all see at the same time that indeed Jesus of Nazareth was what God was. When he ascended, it was like they said, he went to where God is. And where is God? everywhere. Only God can be everywhere. David the psalmist said, where can I go when you're not there? If I go to the sky, you are there. If I go underground, you are there. And so what you have here in the ascension, when they say that he ascended, it's like they confess together that the ascension means that Jesus became extra present so Luke is like saying in this event that the ascension, in the ascension, that Jesus is the one, the Lord who resides where God resides everywhere. And he is accessible and available. And no longer do people have to travel anywhere to find him because he is here among us. The ascension doesn't mean that Jesus is gone, like Jesus left us off to another place. But the ascension means, the biblical writers are saying the ascension means that Jesus is there and here and everywhere. There is nowhere you can go to escape the presence or the divine love of God now. That's the first thing you need to know. The second thing you need to know is heaven was seen by the biblical writers as God's space. And they thought that heaven was the control room to earth. You heard Jesus say this, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. In other words, heaven is the place from which all divine and good instructions are given. Friends, that's where you, that's where you cheer. He ascended 
And now he is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Do you know what this means? It means that in this great event, the ascension, that Jesus has surpassed and at the very same time taken up residency in the control room in an extra present way. And now within space and matter and time, he sits here among us and yet he is also at the right hand of authority next to God. It's like when we say that he ascended, we're saying that he has taken up the controls. He's in charge of the control room. And you need to know that Jesus doesn't rule the control room with a heavy hand or manipulation or threats or, or coercion. You need to know that when they said that he ascended, he actually rules by love. In ascension, love has taken command. That's exactly what we need here on this earth. We could say it this way because the first century believer said it this way. Jesus is Lord. Now Caesar had this great dream and the dream was to be in control of the whole earth. Caesar had a dream to be in control of the whole cosmos. And when he would enter into town, the people would say, Welcome, Nero, Caesar, the Lord and God. But in the ascension, in this moment, Jesus actually takes up the authority of God and connects these two dimensions, heaven and earth, creation with new creation, and takes the best properties of heaven and inserts them them here on this planet. During the presidential election of 2016, I watched as the the political situation came to a fever pitch. People on both sides were going crazy. They They were frantic. Both conservative and liberal Christians were saying things like, Jesus is my president. And that is true. But I'm not sure if people really knew how true that was. But Luke knew. And he said it this way, Jesus is Lord. He is Lord over space. He is Lord over matter. He is Lord over time. And the best properties of heaven, we're invited to receive those. He, Jesus himself, in his ascension, was given the authority of God. Now, if Luke is telling us the truth, that Jesus has taken residency and Jesus has taken authority, then, then what this means is, Those spaces, those places where we live and we work and we play and we explore are quite literally under the authority of God. And these spaces become sacred. Everywhere you go, now those are sacred spaces. And the reason they're sacred is because that's where love lives. Because Jesus resides there and is Lord of those places. And matter It actually matters. The things that are around us actually matter. How we care for this very good earth and the life that exists on it and the mysteries that surround it and the things that we have been given such as our homes and our money and our resources and our talents and our children. These things become sacred because those are the places where love lives. Because Jesus has taken up residency and he is Lord of those spaces and time what we are shaped by, how we give the very little of it that we have. The the time is actually, it actually became sacred in the ascension because time is where love lives because Jesus resides now within time and and, and has the authority. He is Lord over it. 
The ascension means that the Lord Jesus is renewing space and he is renewing matter and he is renewing time and he does it through love. What, what heaven is, sacrificial love, self, death-defying love, enemy-loving love has been manifested here on this planet because of Jesus. Jesus is wherever love is and he brings love to where the empty space is and wherever love is, it's as if heaven and earth are on a collision course with one another. We could say it this way, Jesus's lordship is a renewing lordship. By his authority that comes through love, all things are being made new. Now you might say to yourself, well, what does this have anything to do with my real life? Well, let me tell you, okay? The, the ascension of Jesus means that now Jesus is Lord over really plain, ordinary things. And he's taken those plain, ordinary things and he's made them sacred. It means that the things, that things and space and matter and time, everything carries within it the imprint of the divine. And we need to consider a whole world and our neighbors in that way. Think about this, the buildings that you go to, homes, schools, streets, neighborhoods, offices, the green spaces outside, the food we eat, the way we treat animals, the amount of garbage we create, how we view our neighbors and our neighborhoods, the way we think about the future for our children, our present and our future are all connected in this web of love. These things become sacred They are not to be taken advantage of or to be considered trite because they are central elements of heaven and earth colliding together. And in these elements, Jesus is there and he is renewing these things and he's making them sacred. He says, these ordinary things are now sacred things. Wherever you go, in a moment you're going to leave this place, wherever you go, whatever you see, you will be in a sacred space among sacred things. You know, most Protestant evangelical churches have decided to carve up the world into sections where we give labels to things and we say that this is secular or this is sacred. We even take people and we put them into those kinds of categories. She is spiritual. He is secular. But to say Jesus is Lord is to practice seeing the sacred in everything and everybody. We do that by taking this place seriously, this world that we reside in, first of all, but this place, even this building, this space that we call Midtown Oklahoma City on the corner of Northwest 8th and Lee reminds us that all all space is actually sacred space. It's in gatherings like what we have here where we practice the art of being in this world, not retreating from it because Jesus is resident and he's taken authority in the world. It's in this space, this literal space, where we proclaim together that Jesus is Lord over all of this and all parts of our world. And we confess and we practice that he is renewing it and he's making it better and he's recreating it. And we quite literally, want to be a part of it. That's why we've said that that we have been gifted with this amazing task of reimagining what the church can be. 
a place of acceptance and encouragement and belonging, a place to gather and to pray and to tell stories and to share struggles and to celebrate and serve. And we do this so that the world might look a little bit more like heaven because we are in it and we know that now love is in charge and we are captured by love. So the ascension reminds us that what happens here, even in this place of worship, in this very building that was built in 1907 and then was rebuilt in 2018, what happens here is sacred. Sure, it's an old building that's been restored, but we all know that it's more than a building that's been restored because Jesus has taken up residency and authority by God's love through the power of the Holy Spirit. The ascension means that God's holy land, what he has created, which has been spoiled and defiled, is being restored and renewed. And all all of this, now every bit of it from caves to cathedrals, are all sacred. My throat hurts, can you tell? Look around for a second if you would. Look around. Look around at the people. Look around at the windows. Look around at the old doors and the new projector. You know, this building tells the story of the Christian faith. Seen in the windows, it's seen in the people next to you. And the story of the Christian faith that you get to enter into every week and be reminded of is a story of love. If you're careful and you're quiet, you can... Imagine the choirs that used to sing in here. And you can imagine the weddings and the baptisms and the dedications and the thousands and thousands of hours of serving the poor. That all happened in this place. These are the practices of love. We can imagine those stories. Stories of joy and sorrow And we retell these stories because Jesus is Lord. And our new life and our hope for a new life is actually represented in this space. So I want to ask you a question. What if the people in this neighborhood looked at this church? Would they ask, wow, does that look like a touch of heaven or what? What if they said, That place and those people are the visual image that connect between the known and the unknown, that connect heaven and earth together. You know, spaces like this old church building are called sanctified places. They're set-aside places. They're useful for prayer and for worship, places where when they're set aside, God can be known and felt more readily. We know that buildings tell stories. All you got to do is talk to an architect. He or she will tell you that buildings and structures and facilities are storytelling by nature. Uh, one day I was, one Sunday I was running, uh, I was on a run and I passed St. Patrick's Catholic Church near my neighborhood. And as I passed the church, I could hear the mass. It was very deep and rich. And it was a very meaningful and ancient story that was being told. I could tell that something sacred was happening in there. That's what we're reminded of every time we gather here in this place. I got another question for you. And how would this neighborhood be impacted if we as a church began to take sacred space 
really seriously. If God is in the business of renewing and remaking the world through love, and the church takes sacred space seriously, that means we do not retreat from this world. Instead, what happens here in worship, what happens in church, should be a bridgehead into the world. You know, buildings, worship spaces are not just places for gathering. Maybe even more importantly, they're places for sending. I was watching a a documentary on Netflix called Tiny. Uh, It was about the tiny home movement. And a guy was building his own tiny home. And I remember him saying this. He started to believe that homes would be places where when you were in, what was happening on the outside should pull you out. But when you're on the outside, what should be happening is what's taking place on the inside should be pulling you in. I think that's the same here. What happens here becomes a, a bridgehead into the world. Think about what happens to you tomorrow. We go straight from worshiping in this sanctuary with its symbols and its icons and its liturgy and its rituals and its, and its, its time together and its three-minute good neighbor practice. We go from this place to debating in courts and having conversations with friends around tables and pubs. And we discuss politics and education and city planning and transportation. And we recognize that we are in sacred space when we leave this place to go pay bills and when we speak to people honestly and we bear and raise children and when we go to school or we volunteer in food pantries, when we give our, out of our extra to nonprofits. It's in those things where we recognize the sacred space when we go and we value architecture and appreciate parks and green spaces when we do environmental work or we, 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 uh, we jump into law enforcement or we learn about new, uh, new farming methods. This is the thing that we do when we leave these places. We leave sacred space so that we can take sacred space into the world and it looks like love. And we do this because he has taken residency and authority And in doing so, heaven and earth are actually colliding. This was the early Christian idea. So I think what we do is we allow him, the Lord of all, Jesus of Nazareth, Israel's Messiah, to make something old like us new again. Because Jesus has ascended, and by ascended, he is ascending, he has taken up the authority of God and God's created order, and heaven and earth. Now he is renewing all things. And that is good news for us. And we say thanks be to God. We do something sacred every single week. It is because in the sacred place, we need to be reminded that we take love where we go. And there was no greater love act than what we saw Jesus do on the cross, which is represented here at the table. We share communion together because it reminds us that we really all do belong to one another and that what happens here is sacred and that when we take love from this place to where we go, we are making that sacred as well. So by the power of God's Spirit, Jesus becomes a demonstration for us and he becomes an invitation to a new way and he becomes the empowerment that things as they were don't have to be things as they are. And this is, this is how we, uh, this is the story we tell when we come to this table. It's a good story which says to us, Christ has died. Christ is risen. 
Christ will come again. So I want to invite you to this sacred table. And I want to remind you that everyone who is open to believe in the good work of God, that through Jesus, God has taken authority by the power of his Holy Spirit, and he has taken residency, and that Jesus himself is extra present, even extra present in your life, even if it might not feel like it. And you know it because in his generosity, Jesus on the night before he was betrayed by those he came to save at dinner, took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And then after supper, in the same way, he held up the cup and he said, this cup represents the new covenant that comes in my blood. It has been poured out for you. Whenever you drink this, I want you to remember me. Anybody who is open to that good work in your life is welcome to this table. We want no barriers, so our wine is uh, non-alcoholic, our bread is gluten-free. I invite you to, en- to exit the left side of your row and come down our aisle with our hands cupped, ready to receive that, which is good, and that which comes from God. We do not receive communion here. We, excuse me, we do not take communion here. We receive it because it is a gift. So come to this table, knowing that you are participating in something sacred, that you're participating in an act of love so that you can be sent from this place as a person who is sacred to make the space and the matter and the time that you spend outside of this place sacred through love as well. I want to invite you to this table. So friends, come when you are ready.